Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, coming to you from the isolation of our homes, gastronomic masochism, fish labels, boozy food, and eat it after it gets cold. How's it going, Joshna? I'm well. How are you? I am well. It's been a good week. Fantastic. What are we talking about today? We are talking about the various processes and compounds that make cheese taste the way that it does. Right. And it got me from the first sentence. The first sentence is, who would have thought that a congealed lump of curdled milk could be so delicious? (laughs) And it just sucked me right in. Yeah. What did you think? I well the okay so when I first the the title the title of the piece is why is cheese so addictive mm. right um, and you know you can sort of interchange addictive and delicious sometimes but the first thing that came to my mind which is addressed throughout this piece is because it's it's full of fat right and lesson number one in culinary school is that fat carries flavor right right I and wanted to a, ask you about that because I noticed right. Fat carries flavor. It is the, which is why everything starts with a bit of fat in the bottom of a pan, mm-hmm. right? And, and you infuse things, your onions, your garlic, all those beautiful flavors get infused into that fat because the fat does a wonderful job of carrying flavor around. Uh, so to me, I was like, that's why cheese tastes so good. Obviously, these folks have some deeper thoughts uh, that I was pretty, it was pretty interesting, actually. I was really, I, was, I thought I was very compelled by this and to learn about exactly what's happening. Uh, one of the things, the quotes that I loved was the quote that, where someone said, never before has secondhand food tasted so good. Right. Right. Well, and I had never considered, that's it. I had never considered cheese as secondhand food, but it completely, totally is, right? The first hand would have been the milk uh, or the cream. And then this, the thing made with, with essentially a spoiled version of the milk or cream is this mm-hmm. cheese. I love the way that they got into all of the different bacteria and different things that uh, ferment. And what I found especially gripping, and it makes, I mean, you know, because we think about cheese and there's like the stinky cheese that is very yes. polarizing. And they really dove into this, what they called uh, gastronomic masochism. I love that line. I love like this it. fine line between delicious compounds and gross compounds yeah, or off-putting yes and that's something that i know about from beer because there are a lot of compounds that develop in beer that then react to alcohol and change so one of the classic examples is butyric acid which normally tastes like baby poop um, okay and then it reacts to alcohol and it turns into ethyl butyrate which is pineapple which is delicious whoa right that's a little swing okay how do people know what baby poop tastes like? Or do they say that it tastes like baby poop smells? It tastes like baby poop smells. Yeah, that right. would be gonna, you more said that accurate. Super casually, and I was like, oh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's revisit that. Just one. It just tastes like baby poop. Right. Um, okay, got it. It tastes like baby poop smells. Or yes. vomit. Uh, another common descriptor is vomit if you're looking for something that you've tasted before and you want to have a more tangible description. Butyric acid love that. has also been uh, described as, as vomit. And but the example it, they give in the article is uh, scatol, which I didn't right. know about. Which I is, was very happy to know about that. <laughs> it's the compound that gives poo its smell uh, and potentially its flavor. I don't know. <laughs> um, and 
they talked about it used, used super often in perfume because if you use it in very small amounts. Fascinating. Oh my I God. Love that. And that just, it gets over a threshold and then you're into full on stinky poop. So what they're talking about in cheese is that it, there's tons of these compounds and they're at such a low level and they add this crazy complexity, which is what makes it so, uh, I guess, fascinating or you know addictive as to your earlier point. It's, uh, I, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, I mean, the fat piece is key, but I like the idea that we are somehow in small doses compelled by things that turn us away. Yeah. So here's the list they had in, in the cheese. So, and I, lo- I love the word, the names of these putrescine, <laughs> Ooh, putrescine, Come which on. is responsible for the smell of putrid meat. Okay. Uh, trimethylamine, which gives rotten fish its uh, smell. Hmm. And then ammonia, which is a bit of a toilet cleaner fragrance. Good old ammonia. And yes. like the butyric acid I was talking about in beer, what happens is it, it's th- those compounds are then further broken down. And they end up in the final product smelling nutty, woody, grassy, or spicy. But it's interesting. This, I just have you ever been to a cheese factory? I just, it I must have. smell a I little have. unpleasant in some I of have. those rooms. It smells there. super funky. Um, super funky. Uh, I've been to uh, uh, a cheese making spot. I went to visit our friends uh, at Monforte, and it smells funky. Uh, and then other places I'm thinking about is I've been to a cheese cave in a retail cheese shop. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is to me, uh, that is like it's like there's a cloud of umami that hangs over the air. Funky umami is the best way to talk about it. Well, that doesn't sound unpleasant. It's actually not at all. And you can have a dinner inside of a cheese cave that is quite delightful. But I, all of this also explains why some cheeses really are an acquired taste and some of them yes. are yes. polarizing. When you read about some of these descriptors, it's just like, hmm. Yeah. And what's actually happening in the break, you're like, oh, which, which explains why I have my tolerance for a really, really stinky, funky blue cheese is mm-hmm. very limited. Right. right. I can just have a tiny bit because to me, I can actually feel the sting on my tongue. Ooh. And it's more, it's more than I'm in for with a mouthful of cheese. Yeah. I have to say, I, I still sometimes ha- have a hard time wrapping my because you know these stinky cheeses they say they smell stinky but they taste delicious yes and and i always keep thinking but they still smell stinky but like i'm still smelling it while i'm eating it so um and it's also the other thing that fascinates me and i I hope this won't people won't find this too off-putting but the these parallel compounds so for example the smelly feet odor yes, yes. in cheese is actually the same compound it's by the same bacteria that gets between your toes and actually yes. makes your feet smell thinking about things like that is always really trippy the funkiness right it's sort of yeah. like general funkiness uh about where things develop i like that a lot actually i think that's super funny and the same you know the same bacteria is you know in some cases when it's on feet not very much appreciated it was a, a really interesting article. The end, yeah, because you mentioned the addictiveness. The ending was a little bit of a, a letdown because they were talking about the fact that it. Some people say it's addictive because it has some compounds in it, and that. that ends yeah, up yeah, I uh, I know. I was I was disappointed that nowhere there were they just clear about the fact that fat is the best vehicle for flavor. But uh, a really really interesting and uh, makes it's going to make me 
I think appreciate cheese differently moving forward. I want to talk about fish and seafood. Yes. Right? Because this is the thing, the issue with the state of affairs of our water is quite dramatic. Um, and so we're paying attention to it, which is wonderful. Um, but we've got a piece here um, from our friends at the CBC talking about um, a new study in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Research revealed that farmed Atlantic salmon can be just as nutritious as some species of wild salmon. Hmm. Uh, right. And so I was like, OK, wait a minute. Tell me more. I don't quite understand all of this. Um, and so uh, we have a woman from uh, she's a researcher about this very thing. And she essentially is talking about the fact that we need nutritional labeling on fresh seafood. Uh, the quote here that has really blew my mind was they wouldn't eat people wouldn't eat farmed salmon because wild salmon was just better for you. And she didn't understand where they got that idea from. Yeah, it's right? very interesting because I've been leaning towards farmed fish because I figured it was lower in mercury, uh, which is also wrong. <laughs> right, right. So education right. is definitely needed. Is a key and piece I thought here, the mercury right? was from eating the smaller fish, you know, and I assumed right, that right, in right, farming right, right. they're feeding them something else. So there's probably less, but no, wrong, wrong. Right, and so the it, it is. We it don't is know. Like, we have no idea, and it's like we are sitting at a at a final place after a whole adventure of broken telephone. Yeah, trying right? to make it, an educated decision. We with don't no really know, right, about all of this. The thing that I thought was really fascinating was that there was no, there still seems to be no mention of the fact that when we think about eating fish and seafood, we have to think beyond what it means to put it inside of our bodies. Right. right. We have we have to think about how it was grown, where it was grown, how it was harvested. All of these things matter. Right. But casting nets versus line and hook and all of these different elements that are not mentioned at all. We're just talking about the numbers and the nutritional breakdown in this food with some, I don't know, like urban myth about the fact that wild salmon is better for you than farmed salmon. Right. Right. When I have. I've, uh, based on what, I have no idea, right? There has been some idea, some uh, wisdom about the fact that fish, intentional fish farming is way too intensive and unsustainable and it's damaging to the ecosystem. So if you are going to eat fish, eat sustainably harvested wild caught fish because you can also just scoop all the nets up in the wild and decimate ecosystems in a very similar way. Yeah. Right. But technically one is wild and one is farmed. But they're like the amount of knowledge that you have to have to decipher all of this uh, is is mega. Right. And, and I don't believe that just having a label on the fish somewhere with that nutritional grid. Right. That chart is not answering all the questions and it's not giving you all of the information that you really do need to, in good faith, eat that fish, buy and eat that fish. I agree with you 100%. Um, as I mentioned earlier, education is definitely needed mm -hmm. in this area. But I think you're right. Nutritional labels are not the solution because they, you don't, to, you know, to my earlier point, what are they feeding this farmed exactly. fish, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, all of the other things you described. And the other piece that caused confusion for me in terms of a nutritional label 
is how do you guarantee that? Because, you know, you throw in five different fish, each of them is going to have slightly different nutritional value, right? It's not like a recipe where you can, met, you know, it's got this amount of salt, it's got this amount of this, right. it's got this, right? What are you going to do? Test every single fish? That's also not sustainable. So I, well, I don't this think is exactly it. I don't think nutritional labels are the solution, but so- something is needed because the more I dug, the more I just found like everything that I thought I knew about fish. I, I right, don't know. Right. And you, you mentioned earlier we were talking about the mercury piece. Yeah. Uh, right. You have uh, my sense of it has been placed in entirely the wrong idea. Yeah. Right. I thought I like you thought that the mercury piece was about the smaller fish in the wild. Yeah. Um, but it is in fact, not in fact, it is, you know, it's species fact, dependent. Yes. It's inherent to the fish. Right. And it doesn't and matter if about, you farm it or you, yeah. or it's in the wild. I thought it was about external inputs from farming. Yeah. Right. Or things like that, but that does not appear to be the truth either. Um, mm. Which really lends me to believe that maybe what I need to do is reach out to one of my uh, food uh, fish monger, you know, good fish, yeah. Uh, and sea pals and get them to come in and really help us decipher some of this and really, you know, get a handle on what it is that we all really should be paying attention to. So Joshna, I learned something new recently and I wanted to share it with our listeners because mm-hmm. I, I guess I always assumed that when I cooked with alcohol, if I threw in some wine or, or whatnot into what I was cooking, that the alcohol would evaporate and that it was really right. just about the flavor staying in there. And I found out that, yeah, it does evaporate, but a lot more slowly mm-hmm. than I thought. And a lot of alcohol is still left in the dish. Yes. I'm guessing you already knew that. I did. I did. I did. Uh, from a couple of perspectives, as a cook, uh, I knew that because it was, it's very clear that the, that there's still some booziness left when you do like a crib Suzette, you know, when you're, when you're a quick mm-hmm. family, as opposed to a bottle of red wine that goes in a bourguignon that simmers yeah. over, th- you know, after the three hours that that bourguignon is on the stove, that booziness is gone. You just have the lovely sort of residue of the, of the grapes, you know what I mean? And the mm-hmm. fermented grapes. Um, whereas the crepes or bananas foster, you know, thing quick uh, pan sauces sometimes, the booziness is still very much there. And we know because when you're taught about reducing things with booze or flambeing, the reducing especially, we are instructed to very, to be intentional about keeping our faces away from right. the theme because that's there's a, a quicker shot to the top, right? With with the yeah. inhalation of that boozy vapor. Uh, it can it can do a lot of damage. So you see, there's intentional standing away from the uh, the pan. Uh, so mm-hmm. I did know this bit, um, but w- what I loved, uh, I I actually think it's really important f- for people to learn. Like you know, it shouldn't just be through the course of uh, chef school. Um, oh, the other context that I I was connected to this is uh, my Muslim friends. Okay. Right, because uh, one of the one of the tenets of halal eating is to avoid alcohol. Yes, right, and and that is important as a cook. Uh, accommodating halal eaters means I can't even use the vanilla extract in baking. Right, right? because that's a booze. That's an alcohol based uh, infusion, uh, essentially vanilla extract, uh, and that and that there's no that the what I've heard like from a Muslim person was that there's no 
guarantee that all of the alcohol is gone in the baking process either. Right. So here's okay. Right? So here's what I gathered from the article, just as an example yes. for our listeners. So let's say uh, you cook something and you put a quarter cup of spirits in there. So something that's like, yep. you know, 40, 45% alcohol and you cook it for one hour, a full hour, you still end up with that quarter cup having about the strength of a wine around 12% Whoa. left in it. Wow. So wow. of course, if you're cooking this dish for a few people and you have the equivalent of a quarter cup of wine in there, that's not that, that much alcohol, like divided right. between right. four people. That's not something that is, uh, you know, worrisome necessarily, but you know, for someone who is avoiding alcohol for whatever reason, yep. or, you know, if you're preparing something for a Muslim friend, that it's important to be aware of, yep. you know? And to know that the, the residue is very much there. Because that's a full hour. Appar- yeah, apparently, as you mentioned earlier, it takes a full three hours to really uh, get rid of the significant percentage of that alcohol. I just always assumed, because for me, I guess I, I, I don't enjoy mushrooms without a little bit of red wine in them. Mm-hmm. But I always assumed I throw it in and, you know, you see it and right, that's right. the alcohol. And now I'm just getting the delicious wine. I didn't occur to me that the alcohol, it's still in it there. It will persist. Yes. Uh, one of the things that I loved about this piece, though, was the mention that if the alcohol in the recipe is intended to be the main flavor... Yeah. Uh, and you can't have alcohol, just find another recipe. Yes. I really, I really appreciated the closed door there, right? Because there are certain uh, moments in attempting to accommodate people's dietary restrictions where we just have to shut it down. We have to be like, this is, uh, you know what I mean? If this is a drug, Grand Marnier, Crips, Grand Marnier, uh, we got to have Grand Marnier. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, we have to For have sure. Grand Marnier. It's got to be in there. And if you can't have booze, then you just can't have and the article also had a lot of uh, interesting substitutions. So for yes. our listeners who are surprised by this and have some favorite recipes with some al- with alcohol in them, um, you can go to the show notes and you'll find a link to this article that does has a lot of very good suggestions. I thought to swap so too. In, they were very helpful. Uh, yeah. Different things. But I guess what I've learned from, from all this is I need to open my mind to penne a la vodka, which I always thought... <gasps> Yes. was a silly dish because I always yes. thought, why would I have penne with vodka that is thrown in and then gone? And then what am I eating at the end? But if it's the vodka is still there, yeah. it's uh, one of I think my I need favorite. to give it a try. Totally. Penne a la oh. vodka is one of my favorites for sure. I'm going to open my mind. I like it. For I like that, it to that recipe. <laughs> Okay, so Marilla, when I grew up, I grew up in an Indian family, uh, and and I have learned that I think my my cultural community of people has an obsession with serving food as temperature hot as possible. Okay, right? and it is considered disrespectful, poor hospitality, bad cooking to serve anybody, and 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 anything that is not piping hot is considered cold, right? A, cup a lot of, chai, of people feel that way about a right? lot of foods. A yeah. cup of chai on the stove needs to be brought to three boil rises. Mm-hmm. So it's maximum heat, right? And we and there's always this clamor from my mother being like, the food is hot, the food is hot, come to the table. The food is, it has to be hot, mm-hmm. right? And so having I came across a, a piece that the title of the piece is The Case for Room Temperature Food. 
right? And I was immediately like, we don't need, no, we don't need any room temperature food. That's not the way it is, right? And my experience- It's not the when, most appealing sounding thing. <laughs> not at all, right? When we would eat room temperature food, I remember my aunties and people saying, why are you eating cold food? Don't eat that cold food, mm. right? And so this was, this was a revelation for me. Uh, one of the pieces that I think stuck out the most- was that I did not understand that there were um, that flavors got muted in extreme heat as well as cold, right? I know just from like making ice cream and things like that that we have to boost uh, flavorings because the cold mutes them, and so when they're going to be eaten mm-hmm. cold, we need to crank it up right at room temperature because it mutes it cold. I did not know that it also mutes uh, on the other side. Uh, and that's why, and this piece really brought out a lot of really awesome, interesting thinking about foods that are actually optimally eaten at room temperature. Yeah, uh, I right? guess, so, you know, sensory science is my domain. So I've yes. always been aware that the extreme temperatures are not great. This right. being said, and I'm glad they addressed it in the article later on, my alarm bells immediately went off when Tell when me. they started talking about this because uh, you know, food is served hot for safety reasons yes. as well. Yep. And, you know, I wonder if the insistence of your family on this, the, the hot food is just traditionally passed down because, you know, room temperature food, if it's, if it's left at that temperature for too long, right? uh, it, you know, I think it's two hours. So it is know, two hopefully hours. That's you're, right. you're not letting it sit for, for that long. Um, but, you know, I think it's something that that I'm glad they mentioned it in the article that they didn't say, you know, just cook your food and then just leave it at room temperature. And just and let it hang out. So, yeah, I think. I mean, it's true that a, a little I think a little less than very, very hot and a little less than very, very cold is definitely yeah. uh, a good idea. There is, you know personal preferences as well you know i want my my coffee to be super hot for example right. um i i was yeah a lot of this i had the sort of the opposite reaction yeah, tell me tell me. me well certainly you know pasta is always served hot but that's because the you know it, it the, te- the texture gets weird if sure. you let it sit too long but it was interesting because they she the article specifically mentioned you know carbonara cacio pepe pesto should yes. all be served a little cooler but but they are by the nature of how they're made because you have to after you cook them you have to stir them yes so they naturally cool down yep right fair point yep. and then they talked about um fats and how you know the the texture of the different fats is important and some some fatty foods should be served hotter and some should be mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. chilled down a bit and i know that from pizza because you never eat pizza right out of the oven. You have yes, to leave of course. it for everything to, to come together. So I, I guess I had the opposite experience oh, than you, awesome. which is that's that the funny. foods that I grew up with all sort of follow that pattern naturally. Oh, I love the the cultural lines are pretty great. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah although definitely pasta. Uh, I, I will get cranky if I cook pasta and people don't sit down immediately to eat yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's I am so conditioned about it that mm-hmm. it really is, it really does feel like a, a disrespect. Right, if there's hot food that people aren't running to the table, mm-hmm. right, uh, is a is for, I'm just like, what are you? Come on, maniac, crazy, <laughs> uncivilized maniac, sit down. The food is hot. It's time to eat. Yeah, yeah, but that's also I think uh, just a respect thing. Someone's worked so hard to put this together, and totally. uh, the meal is 
a time to be social. If everyone's just sitting when they're ready and getting up when they're done, then it's not the same enjoyment. Yeah, of it's that not meal. at all. It's true. Um, but I love, I'm going to think about this more. Uh, and, and the hot, and just think about the, the, how flavors change as things warm up. I mean, I know we know this for things mm-hmm. like cheeses, right? Cheeses have to breathe uh, and that yeah. sort of thing. Uh, that makes sense. But I was like, what else? What else actually is pretty great? I, I, there's some internal conditioning that I'll have to yeah. let go of. Fruit uh, as well, right? A huge difference if you keep your fruit, fruit in the fridge or if you keep it uh, on the counter. Yeah, that's a good point. You appreciate the flavor so much more if it's out on the counter. Um, but it, it's right. true what you said. I think the cold piece is much more common knowledge than the hot piece. People yes. don't always think about the fact that they're yep. missing out on on certain flavors. Well, and it makes me question my grandmother and aunties and everything who would get so serious about the flavor in their tea. Mm-hmm. If I'm serving it to them, like from the boiling pot into the cup. Yeah. Right. What are they tasting? But have you tried having it cooler? Because I wonder if just like you mentioned, when you make ice cream, you pack in the flavor. Cause you know, it's served cold. Yeah. Maybe when they're making this tea, it's packed with extra flavor because they know it's going to be consumed hot. It would be interesting oh, to that's take that same tea point. and cool it down and see if maybe you get into sensory oh, okay. overload or I, an imbalance. I have, I have an experiment ahead of me. Uh, I will report back. I like this a lot. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I do. Thank you. If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us at patreon.com slash hotplatepod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HotPlatePod. Follow me at Virology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Original music by Dave Bell. HotPlate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Thanks for listening.